0: This really large city in Greece, um, it was a cultural center, not good culture, all kinds of messed up stuff, idol worship and and, and really tough things going on. There a lot of immorality, but there was a church there in Corinth that was, um, the folks believed in Jesus, they're just trying to figure out how to live in the middle of that world. And so the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, the Apostle Paul wrote them a letter, we call it. 1 Corinthians. And then a little later, he wrote them another letter. You know what we call that? Because the Bible, people who put it together were very creative. They called it 2 Corinthians. So we've got these books of the Bible. And, and the last couple of weeks, I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how central that is to all of our Christianity. And what he's saying is that if Jesus Christ was never resurrected from the grave, basically he was just kind of another guy, and he's not worth following. If Jesus Christ wasn't resurrected from the grave, then we have no hope for any good thing happening after our death either. But Paul says, but Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Jesus did have the power of God to be able to overcome death and all of the mess that goes along with that. And so because of Jesus, we too can have hope hope for this world because jesus taught us how to live and showed us how to follow him but hope for the next life and and that is when we get talking about resurrection stuff and a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies for those who believe in jesus and um it just occurred to me this week and and it was really fun a couple of you gave me a call or we talked and, and and people had questions i love that it helps me so much to figure out what to talk about i realized that what I was trying to describe, and what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 with this resurrection body, which comes kind of at a judgment time when there's a new heaven and new earth, we kind of missed what happens to us now. People who die now, or people who have died recently. What's going on with that? Where, what happens to bodies and souls? So I want to talk about that with you today. That's why the title of this sermon, What Happens to Us When We Die? Well, this is, this is hard stuff to talk about because I know there have, been, there have been movies about people that died for a while and they came back and some of them are based on true stuff and I don't want to like, pick apart all those kind of things. There are some of them that were you know, just people writing horror stories but other ones were people where you know, Christians are trying to faithfully tell the story of what God seems to have done. But can we all agree that there are not a lot of really reliable stories about what people see the instant that they die? Right? We, don't, we don't have a lot of insight into that. We, we've heard little anecdotes. And it's interesting, if any of you know doctors who have been around a lot of folks who have died, they have some similar experiences that really interesting kinds of things. But I think for humanity, one of the big causes of anxiety that some of us live with, and and I guess I need to be careful how I use that word. I'm not talking about clinical anxiety, the kind of thing that stems out of a chemical imbalance or, or, or anything like that. I'm talking about just the things that make us anxious. One of those, I think, is death. I don't think we need to be afraid of that. I think think we can get to a place where if if we're connected to God and if we're forgiven of our sins and if we're sure of our salvation, I think we can get to a place where we can say what the Apostle Paul said that Reuben read for us this morning. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as I'm here on this earth, I can live for God and I've got good stuff to do and I can love the people around me and I can serve the Lord and I I can have joy in life. But... I think we can get to a place where instead of being afraid, we can say with Paul, to die would be even better. Last week, I ended the sermon by suggesting that too many of us are getting hung up on the peanuts in the waiting room instead of looking forward to the steak in the dining room. Talked about one of my favorite restaurants lately, the Texas Roadhouse, and God bless those of you who brought me peanuts this week. (laughs) We've enjoyed them. But some of us us really are kind of wrapped up in this life and and we either forget about or we try to forget about or, or we deny all the stuff that happens after death because it's unsure and because we're unclear and because there's a lot of mystery there. And what I'd like to do today is just let's work through that together. There's still going to be, when you leave today, there's still going to be a lot of mystery, okay? But we can deal with that as long as we're talking about that and praying about that. And I think we can take some of our fear away. This week I was um, watching a series of teachings, and one of the teachers that came up was Oz Guinness. Oz is eighty-five or eighty-six years old. He's a he's a British fellow, and he's been he's been writing and and speaking, um, kind of as a pastor, but as a Christian thinker for a long time, and and. Oz has written a lot of stuff over the years, but I saw about a 15-minute talk from him, and and one of the things that was really interesting, he mentioned those folks lately, and in the last five or eight or 10 years, there have been a number of really popular Christian thinkers or artists or trendsetters who have turned relatively quickly and said, no, I'm an atheist now. People who were were believers, and then they kind of stepped into a different place and said, I don't believe anymore, and then they give their reasons for that. Many people are calling that the deconstruction of their faith, right? People who seem to have faith, seem to have a really alive faith, but now on their public channels, they're saying not anymore. So Os Guinness addressed that. And, and here's what he said. This stuck with me. I'm going to ask you to think about this for a moment. Os Guinness said, these people who are very publicly, listen, we all have doubts and we all have things that we wonder about, but these are people who are publicly saying, I believed, but I believe no more. That's a big deal right? Oz's statement was, these people who are deconstructing their faith, I want to ask them what their faith is that is being deconstructed. In other words, these people who said they believed and now they don't anymore, what was it that they believed that they don't believe anymore? And his contention was this. There are a lot of people who are walking around saying they're Christians, saying that they have some kind of faith in God, but what they really have is not a faith in God, but it's a faith in their feelings, or in their thoughts, or in their intellect, or in their ability to work things out. And so these people are saying, and we need to be really careful when we get into this realm of examining other people's faith, but these people who are deconstructing their faith, the question has to be asked, what faith are they deconstructing? And here's what I've noticed With some of the people in my life, and there are not a lot of them, praise God, but with some of the people in my life who have been walking really closely with God but then stepped back and stepped away, what I've noticed is this. They're usually stepping away for one of two reasons. They're stepping away because they don't feel what they felt before or things no longer make sense the way they made sense before. People who are stepping away from faith, my observation is they don't, they don't have faith anymore because they don't feel the same way as they did or they can't understand things the same way that they did. And I just wonder, are there some of us who are falling into the trap of building our faith, and we call it faith, but really it's just based on emotion. Are there some of us who are just following God because of a feeling? See, that's dangerous. It's good to have a feeling of being close to God. If you are a person of real, genuine, saving faith, I hope you feel close to God sometimes. But our feelings come and go, especially when really, really hard things happen, when people in our families are hurt or compromised, when we ourselves are close to death or when disasters happen around us, it doesn't doesn't feel like things are good anymore. And so, because feelings are the basis of what we believe, when our feelings shake, then our faith shakes, and we say, well, it just can't, it must not be true anymore. That's one of the mistakes that people make. But I think there are other folks, and I've seen this a lot, especially in the academic world, there are other folks who their main connection to God seems to be through their mind. The things they can read and figure out and understand. And there are people who just love, and listen, it is good to study God and it is good to feel close to God. But there are people who I think accidentally or unwittingly, they they made their faith all about what they know, all about what they can figure out. They made it a rational thing. They believe just because everything made sense. But here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. Yesterday, exactly 24 hours ago, we were having a funeral here for a 32-year-old man who died of cancer. Try to figure that out and with your mind make sense of it. Try to figure out why a person who should be in the physical prime of their life, who had so many loving folks, loving family, loving wife around them, how it's their time to die and yet some of us go on. Figure that one out. Figuring things out is the basis of your faith. An experience like that will rock it. And that's not even the worst of it. Some of you were at the funeral at Mount Vernon yesterday where a 12-year-old boy, he was killed last week, he was at a spot and a, a branch fell and hit him. And, I mean, one of those things, you can't make sense of that. We know that God is good, and and that God is in charge, but as far as working, well, this is why it happened, and this is why it had to happen, and this is how it's good, and this is how God... (sighs) And if your faith is built on the ability to figure everything out, and then see that it all makes sense, there are times when you can't figure it out, and if that's what your faith is, your faith starts to go away, right? Because God, how could you? And Jesus, if you could have made a change, why didn't you? We cannot base our lives with God on our feelings or on our rational intellectual ability. Good as those things are, and they are gifts from God, they are not the foundation. The foundation is that we say, I believe in my Lord. I believe in the goodness and the love of God. I believe in the divinity of Christ, and I believe that what he says is true. It doesn't always make sense, and it doesn't always feel good, but I believe it. This is what faith is. Faith is saying, I believe it, even though I can't fully see it. I believe it, even though I don't completely understand it. Faith says, I believe, and that's why Paul can say, to live is Christ." but to die is gain. Paul had an experience, and he talks about it a little bit later. He has this experience of, uh, of kind of a vision from God in heaven, and so he got maybe a glimpse that would've helped him to be able to feel this way, but haven't some of you had glimpses of heaven, too? I mean, let's be honest, and if you're a person in charge of the thermostat, could you bump it down a couple notches? It's getting hot in here. <laughs> Somebody who knows how to do that, go do it now. We won't, we won't notice anymore. But do you understand do you understand the difference that faith makes? Yeah, go ahead, Phil. Just just bump down the cooling a degree or two. Thanks. Matt, if you want to, there's one there on your wall too. It's it's pretty simple. Mess around with it. No big deal. One of the problems that some of us get into is that we base our faith on our comfort, don't we? As long as things are good. As long as business is good as long as the kids are good, as long as the bank account's good, then I'll believe in God. Then I'll believe that God's good. We base our faith on all these kind of things. And so when our circumstances change, then our faith starts to change. But I love the way Paul writes. He says, look, and he's writing this. This guy's been in prison. He's been flogged. He's been burned. He's, there's all this stuff has happened to him. He's being persecuted in a way that I don't think any of us have been persecuted. But Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you live here in this place and say that? Are you at a place now where you can understand that living is good, There are gifts from God and we are called to enjoy them. Jesus said he came that we could have life and have it to the full. But it's not just about living on this earth. That full life continues on to eternity for the believer. And I wonder if we buy that. So all of that is a long introduction to say that I wanna talk a little bit today about what happens when we die. But do not fall into the trap of the rationalist who says that we can figure it all out because today we won't. We're gonna look at some Bible passages and we're gonna connect some dots. But you're not gonna leave here today with a bulletproof argument about exactly what happens once these bodies die. I think we have some good ideas and some things that we can think about and pray about together. And I think it is very clear that God is working for the good of all of those who love him. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about things being bad, but we do get caught up in the particulars, okay? But remember, our belief in God is not based just on what we feel. Our belief in God is not based just on what we can figure out with our minds. And our belief in God is not based on our comfort. We have faith, and so we're going to have to live with a little bit of mystery and unknown because, frankly, a God that we can figure out is not a God worth serving. Let me say that again. A God that we can fully and in every direction, a God that we can figure out is not a God worth serving because that's a God that is no more powerful than our minds. And so our God has left a few things to mystery, but we've gotten some clues. And I want to start today by looking at a passage in the book of Luke. Look at Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start today in verse 19. This is a parable from Jesus. Now this is a unique parable because it is one of the only parables, if not the only parable, where Jesus gives one of the characters a name. Oftentimes Jesus tells these parables, these stories, they're wrapped up in metaphor, and and he talks about a certain man, or or a person went here, or a woman did that. So this this story in Luke is, is a little bit different. This parable, there's there's a name here. But as with all of the parables of Jesus, we have to understand that there is also deep meaning here. It's not just a casual story. It's not something that he tells just for fun to get somebody's attention. There's real depth here. And I want to dig into this a little bit with you. So here is Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man, and by the way, in some of your really old passages, in, in some of the older passages of scripture in the older translation, um, this person was called Dives. Uh, that's not necessarily a person's name. It's, it's kind of a, an old language way of saying rich guy. Okay. But there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who lived in luxury every day. Purple and fine linen, these are the garments of kings. Purple at that time was made from a dye which had to be imported. It was very expensive to get, and linen was a fine fabric. And so this fellow dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. He is wealthy, and he's got it on display. At his gate, verse 20, oh, he's even got a gate. Any of you have gates? Yeah. Some of you would like to have a gate, but you don't have one because you're wondering what people would think if you did. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. Now, this doesn't seem to be the same Lazarus that Jesus rose from the grave. you remember there was Lazarus, the, the brother of Mary and Martha? Jesus wept, and then this is, this is not the same Lazarus. Lazarus is a name that people would have, just like there's more than one Jesse in the world, there's more than one John in the world, there's more than one Mary, okay? But there was a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. He was laid there. Why was he laid there? Why would someone lay a beggar covered with sores at the gate of a rich man? What are they hoping for? They're hoping that, Maybe the rich man will come out and see him, trip on him, help him. Says Lazarus was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's bad enough, and he is sick enough that the dogs came and licked his... And these are not like the, the nice, clean, domesticated dogs that many of you have in your homes. These are dogs, they were often just feral animals that ran around in packs. They were wild, and when Scripture talks about the dogs, these are, these are like, it's, it's more like a pack of wolves than a, a friendly poodle, okay? But the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar, that's Lazarus, when he died, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham. So here this rich man is a Jew. He's calling out to Abraham, Father Abraham. Abraham, the first of the Jewish folks. So here's a man who's a Jew who should have known generosity, but apparently didn't. But he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. It's interesting, his request, isn't it? He didn't say, have Lazarus put out the fire for me. Apparently he thinks Lazarus is his servant, right? He doesn't say, tell Lazarus to bring me a gallon of water or a cold root beer. He says, have Lazarus dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue just just that little bit because I'm in agony. But Abraham replied, and this is where, again, as we understand this as a parable of Jesus, what is Jesus trying to say? Look at the picture. There's a lot going on here. But look at this response from Abraham in verse 25. Son, Father Abraham calls him son, this Jewish man. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so here is the picture. Jesus tells this story. And he says, There's a Lazarus who's very poor, laid outside the rich man's gates, and the dogs cared for him, not the people. And then there's a rich man dressed in linen and fine purple every day. They both died. Lazarus is in a place of comfort. Some folks call this Abraham's bosom if you look at the old languages. But here this rich man is in torment and, and, and it's so bad that this agony, he, he says, just, just give me a, a, just a drop of water. So if the story were to stop there, we might say, wow, that's just an interesting metaphor. What's going on? Rich people care for poor people. Be generous. And there's certainly that message in there. But look what Abraham says. There are a couple things here. Why did Jesus say this? He says, now that you're dead, Lazarus is in this place of comfort and you are in agony. And besides, it's between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. There is afterlife. There is no changing course. The decisions that we make in this life about whether we believe and what we believe, these things are going to affect our eternity. And so this is why we reject any of these ideas that you can um, do something on behalf of someone who is dead to promote them from where they are to where you'd like them to be. No, once we die, our decisions have been made. And there is a great chasm in between the place of comfort where Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, and the place of agony where this man was. And, and here, at least in this time, this man is aware of his agony. He knows what's going on. Now, we don't hear a response from Lazarus. I don't know if Lazarus has any idea. What's, Lazarus might just be living it up in this place of comfort at the moment. But what Abraham says, Abraham is aware. And Abraham says, there, there's no going back, rich man. You made your decisions in your life. And now you're living with it in this time after death. So the rich man answered. He said, then I beg you, Father, verse 27, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. This is actually the first generous thing that this man did. He's finally thinking of someone other than himself. Well, if if I can't be helped, talk to my brothers. I've got five brothers. And what does Abraham say? Again, we can see that, that this, is a, this is a person who had a Jewish background. This is a person who grew up in the scripture. This is a person who, who should have known in life. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the whole Old Testament. Let them listen to them. How does the man respond? No, Father Abraham, he says. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. In other words, this guy's saying the Old Testament's not enough. Moses, not enough. The prophets, not enough. They're going to need to see a dead guy, and then they'll believe. And let me ask you do you think that would have made the difference for them? I mean, you and I might think if, if there were someone who we knew to be dead that, that, that came and stood here in our midst, that that would change everything about our life, that we'd be different people, we'd be changed and faithful forever. But that's not how it works, is it? Do you think that if there were a person who came back from the dead and stood here among us, that, that you would all be changed and you would go out and everybody would buy it and, and everybody would come to faith? No, they'd say, What were they smoking over at Waterway Church today? They would. Those are the. Qu- what were they. What are they teaching? What kind of theatricality is this? What kind of a motive do they have? What's going on behind all this? And in fact, probably because we live in the time that we live and we still rely so much on our minds. Probably most of us would walk out of here. I didn't really. I couldn't have seen that. That, that wasn't real. That was. Somebody was dressed up, right? This guy's saying, please, please. Please send Lazarus, this beggar, the one who was laying at my gate, who apparently they all, how do they know that Lazarus was dead and now is back to life? It may not just be this one rich guy who was so brutally uncaring. It may have been his five brothers too. Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes, they will repent. And Abraham in verse 31 says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham says to them, look, the scripture's is enough. You, you, you read the Bible and, and you come to it with an open mind. This is enough to show you the way. This is enough to show you what faith should be. So what do we see here? Lazarus and Abraham and the rich man, they're all dead, but Lazarus and Abraham, they are in a place of comfort. The rich man is dead and he is in a place of agony. And, and there is some kind of a, an ability to be aware of the other spot, but there's no way to cross back and forth. These two places seem to be in the same kind of a realm, but, but they're divided and are quite different. This is helpful for me, As I understand some of those last words of Jesus, in Luke 23, 43, do you remember there were the criminals on the cross? There were three of them who were crucified together. Jesus was in the middle, and on either side of him was an actual criminal, people who did bad things, and they were being crucified because that's what the Romans did when they decided they wanted to have a capital punishment. And so one of the criminals mocked Jesus, and said, Jesus, if, if you're really the son of God, why don't you just get yourself down from here? And then... The other criminal said, shut your mouth. How dare you? How dare you speak again? And he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, we are bad guys. We deserve what we're getting. But you, son of God, you don't even deserve this. And in verse 42 of Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is dying, the criminal beside him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then in Luke 23, 43, and and church, there is mystery in this. Again, not a bulletproof argument. I'm asking you to think about this with me. Pray about this with me. But Jesus answered him. He said, truly I tell you. What did he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 40. That's a hard thing to think about. And there's a number of different interpretations for that. I've studied studied most of them. And what I want to tell you is that it makes sense to me if Jesus is talking about the same kind of a reality that he indicated in the parable of Luke 16. He talks about this deal where there's this rich guy who was not a man of righteousness and he's in a place of torment after he dies. And there's Lazarus and Abraham, men who were righteous, and they're in a place of comfort. It makes sense that that place could be called paradise. In fact, there are some places where that word kind of seems to be connected there. And it makes sense if what Jesus is saying right here, as he's not resurrected yet, he's just dying on the cross, if he says to this fellow beside him who has expressed faith, Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise, what does that mean? It means our bodies are dead, but our souls are in a place where we are aware of God's goodness and of God's comfort. Because the reality is, is that the day that Jesus died wasn't the day of the new heavens and the new earth and the new resurrection body that we read about in Revelation. That's thousands of years off. Jesus simply says here to this guy, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think what that means is Jesus saying we're both gonna die, we're both gonna be buried, and both of us, at least for this moment, are going to be in this good place with Abraham and Lazarus and all the other righteous who have died. We'll be there in paradise today. Did you ever wonder about where that paradise was, that Jesus and the criminal would be together? Did you ever wonder how they could be there today? I think this makes sense if they're both going to see each other in this paradise part of death. But now Jesus Jesus didn't stay there. Jesus, on Easter morning, rose from the grave. And then 40 days after he rose from the grave Jesus ascended into heaven. What does that mean? Well, he he went up from this earth and went up into heaven. And there are some traditions and there are some scholars and some people who study who say it was at that moment when he ascended into heaven that he took all of those righteous dead who were in paradise and he took them now to heaven with him. And to me that makes sense. Again, we're connecting dots here. And we can argue about this. And you and I can have fun arguing about this, and it doesn't mean that you are a better Christian or that I'm a better Christian or that either of us is the worst. We're trying to think about what's happening here, but here's here's really the core truth that you need to understand. Exactly how that happens doesn't matter as much as the fact that it does happen. That this man who was a criminal on the cross, as of that day, he could be in paradise with Jesus. Where is that? Is that in some place down there or some place up there? I don't exactly know, but it's good. The day that we die, our bodies go into the ground or whatever happens to them, There are all kinds of ways that bodies die, right? We're not all buried. Some are at sea. Some are never found, right? We have all these ways that we can die. But the reality is, and it seems like what Jesus is pointing at here is that there is a place of goodness. There is a place that Jesus even named paradise for those who believe in Jesus. And when they die, that's where the soul goes, no matter what happens to the body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we know that if the earthly tent we live in, he says this body, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. In other words, if this body dies, we've got something better that we're going to. He says, meanwhile, 2 Corinthians 5, 2, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And what Paul is saying is, we we wish that we had better bodies. We wish that we had our heavenly bodies. We wish that everything was better. We wish that there was a new heaven and a new earth, and that all could be set right, and that there would be no more pain. But we are still groaning and waiting because that time has not come yet. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, in verse 19, I think this is the same thing that Paul is pointing to. He says, for the creation even waits, in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. See, in the book of Revelation, and you've heard me talk about this so many times, especially as we get to the end, chapters 20, 21, and 22, there's this picture of Jesus Christ coming back. This is yet to happen. Hasn't happened yet. This is still in the future, Right? There's this picture of Jesus Christ coming back. And there's this picture of Jesus setting all things right. And there's a final judgment. And then all of those who have believed in him, whose names are in the book of life will be resurrected. They'll be given new bodies and they'll go to a new heaven and a new earth. But that hasn't happened yet. There's still this paradise thing going on. And so I tried to put together a little chart here. Hans, could you back up just one for me? See, in the past, pre-Jesus resurrection, there's this whole talk of Sheol and Hades, but what it really looks like and what Jesus seems to be talking about, and remember, before Jesus' resurrection is when Jesus was teaching here on earth, is that there's this paradise for the saved. That's Lazarus and Abraham. That's probably Jesus and that's And that's this fellow who's the criminal on the cross. But there's pain for the unsaved. That's the past. Now, since Christ is risen, there is now heaven. He has taken those out of that paradise. Now they're in heaven with the Lord, with Christ, where the thrones are, and yet there is still pain for the unsaved. And it seems like Revelation and so much of the rest of Scripture points us to the reality that in the future, after the final judgment, there will be a new heaven and a new earth for the saved. There'll be no more tears, crying, mourning, or pain. There'll be no more night there. The Lord will live with his people and he will walk among them. That's the new heavens and the new earth. That's when we get this new resurrection body that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 that we wish we had now because I don't know about you, but I'm falling apart. I had to buy glasses this week. I never had to buy glasses, but my eyes just don't work. I'm 46. The doctor said, yep, you're at a time where this happens. I wish it wasn't that way. The first 45 years of my life, I could see everything. I could see the gnat on your car in the parking lot and I could read stuff right here. That's a little thing, but I wish it was still that way. It's not. My body's falling apart. Do any of you have complaints? Sure you do. Knee replacements, back aches, headaches. There's a time coming where we get a new body that never decays. And it seems that as we look at all of this kind of stuff, and I haven't been talking about hell, I haven't been talking about eternal torture and all that kind of thing, but the scripture talks about there is a lake of fire for eternity and it says that's where where Satan and his angels and that's where death and Hades go. Oh, lots of things we could talk about with that. But what I want to talk to you about today though is not the things that you need to be afraid of. I want to talk to you about the things that you can be excited about. Because the reality is exactly how the chronology works. That's curious. That's good to study. It's good to think about and put together. But exactly how that works, it's all pointing to the same thing. It's pointing to the truth that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and those who follow him as Lord have nothing to worry about in eternity. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ can look forward to life that is just better than what we've got now. And so my call to you is simply, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can have a full life now, a rich life now? I know there are a lot of you who are working hard. You've got good jobs and you've got a mission that you're on. That's good. I know a lot of you are loving well right now. You're looking out for each other. You're taking care of your families. You're you're trying to step in for those who don't have. That's good. But you know, there comes to a place where all of us, are not going to be able to use our our work or our money or our stuff or our abilities to fix it anymore. There's going to come a time where we have to lean on Jesus. There's going to come a time where no matter how well we've been trying to live, we are going to run out of strength and ability and we have to find strength in God. And I'm just inviting you to do that today. Yesterday, we buried a 32-year-old and a 12-year-old, and everything in my mind says we shouldn't have had to, but we did. Until Christ comes back again, those things are going to continue to happen. So where are you at? Have you confessed faith in Jesus Christ for real life now? And have you confessed faith in Jesus Christ for good life, even after your body dies? And have you confessed faith in Jesus Christ, not just for yourself, but for the people around you who are watching you? You fathers, you want to look out for your kids? You want to take care of your wife? Fine, buy your insurance. Work hard. Take care of their physical needs. But the best thing that you can give your kids is the kind of witness that makes your kids say, I want to believe in Jesus, because dad did too. I want to follow him, because don't you want your kids to be with you in heaven? I do! What's the most valuable thing I can pass along? What's the most valuable thing that I can exemplify? Faith! Not being smart, not being nice, not having it all figured out. Faith! I want people to see that in me so that one day, one day, I can greet them in that new heaven and new earth and, and in whatever their new body looks like and whatever mine is like, and, and we can say, See? We couldn't see it then, but now here we are, and it's goodness forever. Do the good things that you're doing, don't stop. But, but people, we've got to have faith in this life if any of it's gonna matter. Show your kids your faith. Show your spouse your faith. You wanna take care of your husband? You wanna take care of your wife? Any of you couples ever had that weird discussion about which one of you is going to die first? These are the things that, Millie and I have had that discussion and we've talked about, well, how do I hope you live if I'm not here? How do we handle this? Where are the passwords at? (laughs) But most of all, if I die first, I want her to be able to come to a funeral and say, I'm going to miss the old guy but I know he's in heaven and I'm all right. That's what I want her to be able to say. And if something totally unexpected happens and she dies first, do you know what I can say? I can walk in and say, oh, I'm going to miss her. And I wish she weren't dead, but I know she's in heaven because I know her faith. What are you working so hard to pass on to your kids and your family and your loved one by your insurance Work hard and take care of the finances. Yes, do those things. Make memories. But show the world your faith so that they don't have to be afraid and you don't have to be afraid. And we can all really say with all of our hearts what the apostle Paul said, to live is Christ. And I'll do that as long as I'm called but to die is gain. Is there anybody right now who just needs to stand up and say that they believe in Jesus? Is there anybody right now who's never done that before who who just needs to declare that they believe in Jesus Christ? Could you tell us your name for everybody? My name is Nick Staten. I'm a to church, and uh, I believe in Jesus. Amen. And have you asked him to forgive you of your sins? I have. And are you going to make him your Lord? I do. Amen, Nick. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Betty, have, have you asked God to forgive you of your sins? And you believe that Jesus is your Lord. You believe in him today. Amen, Betty. (laughs) Is there anybody else today that just needs to say that they believe in Jesus? Especially, is is there anybody that that for the first time is, is making that claim? I don't want to embarrass you or call you out, but I want to give you a chance to declare that you believe. Hang on a second, Claire. Hang on here.
1: I got a story. You got got a story? All right. July 6, 1996. If you travel north on Route 10 to 896 and turn right, first farm on the left is Anthony Byler's farm. The next farm on the left is where my cousin Nate and Melba King lived. I used to rent that barn to put straw in. Long story short, I fell out of that barn one time, was taken to Jennersville Hospital, and the doctor, asked me uh, my name. I knew that. Long story short, he asked me who was president, and I told him Hillary Clinton. (laughs) I'm serious. I know, I know. They admitted me. Where? In the hospital. But I knew where I was at, I knew my wife was with me, I knew Kerwin, my oldest son, was with me. But everything was black. I was in a state of what they called semi-unconsciousness. They put all kinds of stuff on me to test me in every way they could. But during the night, I got a vision of a stairway going up to heaven. There are no words to ever describe the beauty of heaven. There is no words to describe what I saw. There is angels on both sides of that stairway. Just as beautiful, beautiful, I can't describe it. But at the top was a person that I believe was Jesus. And I can stand here and tell you honestly, he did not tell me he was Jesus, but that's who I believe it was. And he said to me three times, come up, Claire, come up. And three times I answered him back, no, I want to stay for my wife and children. There are days that I wish I would have (laughs) gone. But by far and large, My children and grandchildren as they become of age, which I have nine of, are becoming to know the Lord and Jesus as their Mm -hmm. Savior. And so I'm glad I stayed. Mm. But I want to tell you, heaven is real. If you're here today and have doubts, give in. Mm. We're waiting for His return. Amen.
0: those of you uh, who are watching online, and those of you who maybe haven't been here very much, uh, you might not know, uh, this is a little unusual for us here at Waterway Church. Not for people to declare their faith, but what we've been going through here the last couple of minutes is, is, is different for us. And so, um, if you have any questions about our morning this morning, I'd love to talk to you. Claire, uh, who just shared with us, if you have any questions for Claire, um, I'm sure he'd be willing to talk with you as well. Thank you for sharing. Nick Staten, you shared your faith with us, with us today. Thank you, brother. Betty, you stood up and shared your faith with us today. Thank you, sister. I just want to continue to encourage us all Remember the blessings of God. And and those blessings don't come from our own work. They don't come from our own accomplishments and they don't come by accident. The blessings of of God come through faith and deciding to have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And and that's what it's all about. once, Once we commit ourselves to these lives of faith, then there's all kinds of stuff that we work at so that we can honor our God. And give him praise. But at the core, at the center of all of it, is faith that says, I believe. I want to encourage all of you to take that step, even if you haven't yet. Or maybe kind of here in this crowd is not your spot. I'll I'll be here for a couple minutes after today. Come talk to me. Or or give me a call. You got a a bulletin? You got the the QR code there in front of you on your seat? Scan that thing. Give me a call or an email. We'll talk this week. I'd love to catch up with you. Because this faith thing, this is what it's all about. This is the middle of it all. Can can we pray together?